To close out Black History Month, I interviewed my friend Kevin Matthews about the Tulsa Race Massacre, also known as the Black Wall Street Massacre. In this episode, learn how this one event affected Black wealth and how to help close the racial wealth gap. Plus, find out how Kevin is building intergenerational wealth for his family and learn what the heck actually happened with GameStop a few weeks ago. The Mental Health and Wealth Show. The Mental Health and Wealth Show. The Mental Health and Wealth Show. Thank you so much for listening to the Mental Health and Wealth Show. This is host Melanie Locker. And first of all, I want to acknowledge that you are brave and amazing for being here. Getting ready to listen to a show about mental health and money is not easy, and I know you are ready for these amazing conversations. But before you listen, I want to let you know that all of my content is based on my own personal experience with mental health and money, as well as the experiences and expertise of my guests. I'm not a mental health professional or a financial professional, so content should not be considered professional, medical, or financial advice. As a trigger warning, please note that content on the show may include sensitive topics around mental health and suicide. So if you're currently in distress, please get in touch with a professional by texting HOME to 741-741. Thank you so much and enjoy the show. This is Melanie Lockhart, host of the Mental Health and Wealth Show. Today, I'm speaking to my friend, Kevin Matthews, who is a best-selling author, former financial advisor, and founder of the blog, Building Bread. Kevin regularly speaks to young adults across the country and has been featured in numerous publications, including the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Forbes, Black Enterprise, and more. Kevin holds a bachelor's degree in economics from Hampton University and a certificate in financial planning from Northwestern University. And we've been connected in the blogosphere for quite a while now. So I'm super excited to have you on the show. Yes, thank you for having me. I'm so excited because you have been an OG in the personal finance space. I think you started your blog in 2010, correct? I did. Like, I feel so accomplished for having stuck with something for so long. <laughs> Seriously, that is longer than most people's relationships. It <laughs> like, is. <laughs> if you think about it, that's like, that's like a marriage. That's commitment. And, you know, they yeah. say most people quit blogging after six months. And I totally understand why it's a lot of work to to manage a blog. So congratulations on that. And I'm super excited that it connected us several years ago, all the way back, I think in maybe 2015, 2016. And glad that yeah, you're still so. on my radar. And I know that you have done so much in the past few years, and you've learned so much. So I'm super excited to share your knowledge with the mental health and wealth audience. And with that, I wanted to kind of start on your history. You know, you were born in Tulsa, which I know holds a very special significance when it comes to race and money in particular. Can you share a bit more about the Tulsa race massacre on Black Wall Street for my listeners who may not know? Yeah, definitely. I'll I'll give a, a brief overview of it. Um, I'm writing a book on it, so like it can go for days uh, to really oh, understand. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of interesting like historical context and, and things that happened. But for a brief overview, um, so this this year, this May and May and June technically will be the 100th commemoration of what happened in Black Wall Street. And in oh, 1921, wow. it was called the the Greenwood District. It was one of the wealthiest communities, wealthiest Black communities in all the country. And at that time. I mean, Tulsa had five black owned hotels, 31 restaurants, two movie theaters, 
24 grocery stores. And on May 30th, 1921, which is actually Memorial Day, a man named Dick Rowland, who was a shoe shiner, went into town and went to the elevator and tripped over the elevator operator. She's a white lady named Sarah Page. She screamed and word got out that he may have sexually assaulted her or attacked her in the elevator, which was not true. So once it hit the newspapers, um, he was arrested. An angry mob, show, an angry white mob showed up to the courthouse building. Armed black men came there to defend him because there were several lynchings in Tulsa in the years previously. The mob came through and burned down everything. They had a 26 to 1 advantage. So you can really see why it was a massacre and not a riot. Days later, the city of Tulsa passed a fire code that prevented Black Americans from rebuilding and made it far too expensive to rebuild. So today, in 2021, there are exactly zero grocery stores, zero movie theaters, and the entire landscape has been affected by what happened 100 years ago. Oh my gosh, thank you so much for sharing that wild history. And I'm getting here... And I'm getting tears in my eyes as I'm listening to you speak because this is a part of history that has not been shared with the masses. I believe there was a, a TV show the past year, I think The Watchmen, that was kind of referencing that. I haven't seen it, so I'm you know not yeah. familiar. But besides that, it seems like a lot of people were not familiar with this piece of history. I know I wasn't. And, I think that before and you. A and for that. Yeah. yeah. Why there's do you think that is? So, <laughs> well, uh, actually, it wasn't required in Oklahoma history until last year. What? <laughs> Believe it or not. Yeah, it was not required in any state. It wasn't state part of Oklahoma history? It was not. It was not required. So I think when I took Oklahoma history, it was like a tiny paragraph like, hey, this thing happened on your block. And I live one block to the left of Greenwood Avenue. So to the west. And like, this is literally my neighborhood of where these things happened. Um, so it wasn't required in Oklahoma state history up until last year. And there's like now unofficial curriculum, you know, at the last minute. Most people didn't know about the event at all until the Oklahoma City bombing when I was in like preschool or first grade in the 90s. So when that happened, that brought a lot of attention because people said, oh, my God, this is the worst terrorist attack that's ever happened. This is, you know, awful. And it was right. But then 90 to 100 miles down the road. People in Tulsa were like, actually, it's not. It's there was something that happened. Actually, no <laughs> actually, there's something that happened here that you totally didn't talk about. So that's when people started to study it, like 1996, 1997, and that's when word got out about it. So that's how you get The Watchmen. That's how you get Lovecraft Country, both on HBO, um, that heavily referenced Tulsa and what happened in 1921. That is so wild to me that this important piece of history, an actual massacre, this decimation of Black wealth can just be hidden under history for so long. And it takes another crisis for it to get uncovered. You know, it takes more racial justice movements to even get talked about and to be in the media. And I'm so grateful that finally they're getting the airtime. And that's obviously why I wanted to talk to you about it, because I feel like my listeners may or may not know about this very important piece of history. I mean, this was a very, you know, it seems like wealthy black neighborhood, a lot of black businesses. There was money being transferred and, and grown and built in this community. And it was just wiped out, right? Mm -hmm. So what do you think are the long-term consequences of the Black Wall Street massacre? Yeah, I think for, for those who are still in Tulsa and those who come from Tulsa, it's... um there's like this, this overarching fear and 
kind of like a, a what if. Like I always wonder, like what if my great great grandparents still kept their theater and where where I would be today? Like we know from from any wealth study from any family, right? Take take the Waltons who who own Walmart. They're still rich <laughs> and they have been here for forever. And I don't know what generation they're on, but they're still on. I don't know, top 10 richest people in the world still to this day. And even on a moderate scale, I I have to wonder like how much differently would my community look like today, right? Like that's not too far removed. My my grandparents are in their 80s, right? So that's one more generation. My great grandparents may have benefited from that. Again, they called it a riot instead of a massacre at the time to deny insurance claims. What if they were made whole, could have rebuilt, and I could have inherited a home, or my grandparents could have inherited any amount of wealth? Um, so that that part, I think, is a, the long-term consequences. In an area where you had 24 grocery stores and you have zero now or, or next to zero today, like that part of Tulsa, the north side of, of Tulsa, is a food desert, and that has very dire physical health complications. Um, it's the reason why the length of health that you have there, your life expectancy, is lower on that side of town. Those are the things I think are the, the long-term impact, um, both psychologically, physically, and emotionally. So you're telling me that there was kind of this semantic loophole to not pay insurance. It was called a, quote, riot and not a massacre to justify not paying insurance? Absolutely. Ugh, that is so awful. I can't even begin to think about it. And as I was listening to you talk, I just kept thinking about generational trauma. You know, this is the mental health and wealth show. So obviously we talk about both mental health and money and I'm listening to you and I'm thinking like, of course you would have this fear in the back of your mind, this kind of trauma that's passed down. Like I know that I've read studies that say trauma actually modifies your DNA and gets Mm. transferred down. So like when people say like, you know, trauma can be passed down, it's actually true. Like from what I know, it can modify parts of your DNA and and change everything. And that is so awful to me to think about. And the mental health burden of knowing that A, that that happened, and always kind of wondering, like, could it happen again? You know? Yeah. And I think that's that's something that's always been top of mind is, is could it happen again? So what we've seen, let's say, in, in Minneapolis um, last year, right, we had massive protests due to police brutality. Well, in Tulsa, there were two events that happened uh, with Betty Shelby, who was released and nothing happened to her. But we had two prominent black men that were killed. And Tulsa didn't have nearly the same support or I would say, I wouldn't say motivation, but you didn't see the same reaction. It was was very tame compared to Ferguson, compared to to Minneapolis and, and other areas. I think a part of that is because of the fear of like, what if they come back? What if they do this again? So that's, that's always something I've kind of internally questioned and just wondered, would our reaction have been different, would have gotten more attention had that massacre not happened? And if that is still like a looming threat in the back of our minds. Yeah, the mental health and wealth implications of this massacre, you know, it's sweeping. It just, you know, it has affected generations to come up until present day. And I definitely think that this has played some kind of role in what we call the racial wealth gap. Obviously, there's this racial wealth gap, and um, I wanted you to talk about that a little bit more. And then more importantly, I'm curious, is there something that people of color and allies can do to maybe help close the gap 
Is there any advocacy? Is there anything personally that we can do? Because I know this is a hot topic and it's something that I think we should take action on. And I think a lot of people aren't quite sure where to start. Yeah. So for those that don't know, the racial wealth gap is essentially exactly what it sounds like. It's the gap in wealth between white individuals and white families and any people of color, really. But in in the context of African-Americans, it's going to take 228 years for African-Americans to catch up to the level of wealth that white families have today. 228 years, which is ridiculous because we've been here since 1619. So we've literally been doing the work. We have been here long enough. There is no, you know, no natural reason as to why we we wouldn't have at least a comparable level. I think depending on which study you're looking at, we're somewhere between, you know, six and a half to 10 times less. Uh, We have six six and a half to 10 times less wealth, again, depending on which study you're looking at. So what, what do we do? What can we do? There are a few things. Number one, we can fight for equal pay across the board. That is the biggest generator. If you have more money coming in, then you can save more, you can invest more. There was a study from, I think this was from City last year, where the cost of racism has cost us $16 trillion in the last 20 years. $16 trillion in 20 years because of less pay, because of higher fees, because of denying mortgages. And when you think about that that stuff, if African-Americans and people of color were granted the exact same rights and the exact same access, especially for housing, that's more money for realtors, more money for banks, more tax revenue for, for school districts. It really helps everybody. But racism actually hurts us all. Um, so that's that's one, equal pay, equal access. Number two or three, depending on how you're numbering these, I would say invest, investing outside of just real estate, because that is, in my view, one of the most transparent ways to grow your money. We've seen tons and tons of stories about how black family tries to sell home. It doesn't work. They come in, they put in white faces and substitute someone else. And then the house sells, right? Depending on your area, you're in LA, I'm in North Carolina, like all those things can really factor in real estate. But if you and I both buy Apple at the exact same time, exact same day, we're going to get the same price and the same profit. So that's one way to kind of get around it to a degree. And then lastly, you want to support Black-owned businesses. You want to support all minority-owned businesses, but do it in a way that is what I would suggest is systemic. For example, you already, or most of us should have a bank account, right? Even if you own a business, you have a business banking account. Put a portion of that money in a Black-owned bank. Put a portion of that money with a company that is minority-owned because you were going to spend that money anyway. You needed a bank anyway. The money was going to sit there. Allow people to continue to grow with you and with your business and really put your, your economic effort behind people of color to help us all move forward together. Oh, I love that. And I think that's so actionable and such wonderful advice. And I think another thing that we can do is really continue to talk about wages and what people are getting paid. I know this is, mm-hmm. you know, happening with men and women in general and the feminist movement, but also this can be related to the racial wealth gap is we need to talk about what people are getting paid because if, you know, a person of color is realizing they're way underpaid because a white person says, "Hey, I'm getting paid this much." You know, that is power. That helps them understand like we need to change things. And also something interesting that I have seen um i follow this blogger she's also a podcaster um her name is nicole antoinette and she posted her budget breakdown a couple of weeks ago and it was interesting i believe she had 
4% of her budget to go towards Black-owned businesses and kind of like redistribution of wealth. And I thought that was really interesting because she's white and she is making a budget line item to specifically redistribute wealth. And I think this is something that has been talked about a lot, but a lot of people aren't doing in practice. And so I kind of really love that she was doing that because she's really putting her money where her mouth is and saying, I believe in wealth redistribution and, you know, white people have had such an advantage for so many years. Like we can actually share the wealth, spread the wealth, and I'm going to do it in a way that makes sense with my budget and also my values. And like you said, you can support Black-owned businesses, Black-owned artists. You know, I'm a big fan of music, like all of my music tastes to Black culture and African-Americans. Like we can put our money to support people of color. Absolutely. And I, I love that idea of, of having a line item. And it reminds me a lot of, I think it was Netflix that was um, putting a significant amount of money, several hundred million in black owned banks. And they said, look, we had to have the money in cash anyway. <laughs> Why not yeah. put it here? Right. And the, the thing is, when you do that, even if it's 2% of your money, 4% of your money, whatever amount it is, especially in the, in the banking context, that means they have to go hire more people. And that means they get to loan more money to black owned businesses, which means they get to hire more people. Like it, it is a multiplier effect if we actually commit to sitting down and doing that. Yes, I love that. And I love how you kind of look at the big picture of things that it doesn't just mean more money. It means more jobs and more security and more access. And when we think about things on all of those levels, like I can imagine mental health going up, physical health going up, happiness going up, you know, just so many things just going up and being more positive and maybe we can all just live happier lives. So definitely I think that is something that we can all can and should do. Redistribute your wealth and support black owned businesses and businesses that are by people of color. Love that. And one thing that I also love is that you are super into generational wealth. I love that you're always talking about saving for your family and your children. And I just wanted to talk about like what steps are you actually taking to build generational wealth with your family right now? Yeah. So for me, this started in 2010. I moved to New York for the first time um, as an intern for what was then ING Investment Management. I think it's like FOIA now. And I was a terrible intern. I'll be honest with you. I was the worst intern in the world. I would fall asleep. I didn't know. I had no idea like what these people were talking about. But I did learn a few things. And one of the things I learned, um, we call this like back testing. So it's like, if you invested this much at this point in time, how much would you have today? So I called myself doing something and it was like one day at lunch. And I found out that if my parents start investing from the time I was born, it was like $1,000 a year, which is like $83 a month. It's not a whole lot. Um, that they started investing in Apple from 1989 to like 2010, I would have had like, I don't know if it's two or three hundred thousand dollars that I could have had at that point in time. And I was like, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> like, what have I been doing with my life? Right. And that like set a fire in me. And that's actually when I started building bread was like directly after that. Cause I'm like, everybody, like, did you know that you could do this? <laughs> so, um, that's, that's what started I love it. it. And for me, I wanted to make sure that my kids never had to wonder what if. Like, I always wondered, like, what if Black Wall Street never burned? What if my parents had saved just $50 a month in, in the stock market or, or had, done, had done any of that? Like, I didn't want my kids to really have to sit back and wonder, like, what if dad, like, saved or invested all this time, right? 
so that's that's really what what got me on this journey. It's why I'm proud to invest for my kids. I have a five two nine plan for college, which you know hopefully college is free by then or at least less expensive than what it is now. We'll see. But I got a plan for so. that, <laughs> right? Um, but totally. I got a plan for that. That's what the five two nine is for. And then I have what's called a custodial account where I invest aggressively for them. And then when they turn eighteen, that money is theirs, and they're able to start off at a much higher playing field than what I did. So my son, he'll be three next month in March and he has more money at age three than I had at 18. And at 18, I was working at I gas stations. <laughs> yeah, I was working <laughs> at gas stations. I think at the time I had like $2,000 and that was the richest I've ever felt at that point in time. And this was like <laughs> yeah. 2008. I'm like, man, I got two stacks. Like what's a kid to do, <laughs> right? Uh, my, my son is like well on his way to like 5,000 at you know, he, he can't even count that high. Right. But that's, that's the power of investing now. Like this is age three. By the time he's 18, he'll have more money than I had probably in my thirties. Right. So that's the power of, of investing. Why I'm so, so excited to teach people about it. And why I'm so excited to to actually do it for my two kids. I love that. And I think that is so beautiful. And just thinking about like, wow, <laughs> you know, you're, child has more money at age three than you had at age 18. Like it's such a wild concept, but it's so beautiful that you're taking these steps to actually build generational wealth so that by the time that they are an adult, they have so much more access and security and freedom and choices. And like you said, they're at a way better playing field than you were at that age. Absolutely. And I think at the end of the end of the day, that's what money is. It buys them options. It buys them choices it buys them freedom to a degree. You know, for me, I had to I had to have a certain car because I only had but so, but so little money, right? And just had to make it work. You know, I had to eat Taco Bell every day when I was in college because all I had was 99 cents. <laughs> so not to say my kids are going to be out here eating lobster and steak, but at least they'll have options to get more than what's on the dollar menu. Yes, I love that. I think, you know, I'm I'm not a parent, but you are. And from what I know, I think all parents want to give their children a better life than they had. That's just something I gather from parents. And I think that's probably mostly universally true. And so you're actually really putting the money towards that and making that happen. I think that's so lovely. And thank you so much for sharing the actual tools that you're using, the 529, the custodial account. I think it's important for us to know kind of specifics so other people can hopefully do the same. Love it. So you are wearing an invest hat, which I totally love and think is amazing. You talk a lot about investing and you always are on Instagram sharing so many gems about what's happening in the stock market. So a few weeks ago, GameStop had an unprecedented surge. It was all over the news. Some of us are kind of understanding what happened. Some of us are kind of like, what? So can you break down a little bit what actually happened with GameStop and, and why that was particularly risky for some people? Who Risky is the word <laughs> because it certainly <laughs> was. Um, risky. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was wild. Um, so it was, so I'll say this, like, it was fun for me just because like I had to cover it. So like every day, sometimes twice a day, I'm like, on Instagram, on Facebook, like, hey, this is what happened today. Um, let me, you know, let me spill the tea of what's going on. So I've had a lot of fun covering, but it, but it was risky. I don't recommend many people do that, but I will explain what happened. So 
I want to use a metaphor I heard from a friend that I think really kind of crystallizes what happened. So GameStop went through what's called a short squeeze. And here's how I describe a short squeeze. So I'm someone who loves, loves, loves college sweatshirts. I collect them. If I've been to campus, if I got a family member that's been to campus, like I have that college sweatshirt, just period. Um, so imagine you're going into Target, you borrow the sweatshirt, keyword is borrow. And they say, look, when you come back, pay us $5. For this sweatshirt. So you take the sweatshirt and you say, look, I'm going to rent this out for $50 a piece. I'm renting out for $100 a piece. And you're making money, right? Because if I'm selling it or I am renting it out for $100 and I get to return it to Target for five, I make $95 every single time. This is what we call short selling because you are borrowing shares of GameStop in this case. And at the time, GameStop wasn't a company that anybody thought would, would go up. It's a dying business. So as the anytime you do a short sell, anytime a company falls, you, the short seller, you're making money because you're borrowing it and selling at a high price and you're giving it back to everyone else at a low price. So what happens in a short squeeze is when someone else is wearing a celebrity rather is wearing the sweatshirt that I was renting. And now I don't have to, now it's not $5 to return to Target. Now it's $200. Now it's $500. And the longer I wait, the more expensive it gets. So I've only made $100, but now I have to pay back way more than what I've had to borrow. And what happened was a lot of hedge funds short sell to make money. Well, when people like Wall Street Bets, this was the Reddit thread of just everybody just figured this out and we're buying in, which means that now the hedge funds have to buy back in to cover that loss. So that's what really bid up the price from, I think it was like November, December, GameStop was $4 a share, just $4. Within weeks, by the time this really hit the, you know, the high point, GameStop at one point during the day touched $520 a share and then ended up, you know, closing at like 370 which is absolutely ridiculous. There are people who made tons and tons of money by getting in very early and selling at the very top. But then you also had new investors who were not familiar with this process and weren't really sure of what was going on and bought at the $300, $200 mark and then it fell. I don't know what GameStop is today. I can tell you now it's well under $100. So people who got in late have lost money already. And it wasn't a company that, um, it, it's a new blockbuster. That's That's how I see it. Thanks so much for breaking that down. Yeah, I, I don't know what it is today, but I think I saw a headline that said it's about 80% down from what it was. So, you know, definitely yeah. it was kind of a surge, very, very risky. As Kevin mentioned, we don't necessarily really recommend that. So, you know, if that's kind of a, a risky investing strategy that people shouldn't necessarily pursue if they want to build wealth, what are some investing strategies that people can use to build wealth responsibly? Yeah. So I just looked it up. It is like $52. <laughs> so oh, wow. yeah. So within a few weeks, you go from almost $400 a share all the way down to 50 and it'll eventually go back down to where it was. So wow. speaking of building uh, wealth responsibly, <laughs> here are a few things that you want to consider. So number one, I think the base level investment for most investors needs to be index funds. And index funds own entire sections of the market. So instead of you having to sit down and decide, is this company going to be good? What about this one? What about that one? You put your money in the entire stock market at once. I like to look at it. I'm a, a huge Laker fan. So as much as I believe in LeBron and Lakers, I've been a Laker fan for forever since like back in the Shaq days for those who like he's just jumping on bandwagon that's not the case I've been here 
<laughs> but the difference though, like let's say the Lakers are Apple. It's probably very, very good stock, but I am taking a risk, right? Well, what if I just own the entire NBA? It doesn't matter who wins. I own the whole NBA. That's what you're you're looking at in an index fund. So it owns everything. So for most investors, you can do this, put it on autopilot, mind your business, and just leave it alone and, and let it grow. On average, and this is average, it's not every single year, you're going to get anywhere between 7 to 10%. And that is very, very good for those who are trying to build wealth, but not trying to take and you know, take huge bets and huge swings and losing money from time to time. Love that. Yeah, I'm invested in index funds. And I believe Warren Buffett, that's one of his big yep. wealth building strategies. He's a huge fan of index funds and just kind of this buy and hold strategy of you invest and you forget it for, you know, the long term. So you're not necessarily recommending like dipping in and out whenever you need cash, right? Yeah, yeah, you don't want to do that. Um, so there are a few reasons. So when the market fell last year, there were people who thought, well, if I just take my money out right now, I'll just wait until things get better. And this is going to help me to, to stay safe. That is a logical conclusion. And on paper, it makes sense. But studies actually show that the best 10 days in the stock market actually happen within like two weeks of the 10 worst days. So you're really, oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, it's, I'm like, really? <laughs> but if you go back and, and look at the headlines from March, it'll say worst one day loss ever. And like two days later, best one day gain ever. Like and <laughs> you're, there's no way you're going to be able to time that kind of thing. And you never know yeah. when is the bottom and when is up. So usually when you just stay put, mind your business, <laughs> just, just keep investing and leave things alone. Nine times out of 10, you're going to be in the best spot. Yes, I love that. And I wrote an article back in March when that first happened and everyone was panicking and you know it's it's not that you really lose all of that money per se it's it's a loss on paper mm -hmm. right i think this is what we call an right. unrealized loss so an unrealized loss well you're the investing expert can you explain to us what an unrealized loss is <laughs> yeah so unrealized loss and unrealized gain is if you sold it today you would have lost or you would have gained it is not real until you have actually sold. And back in March, when the market was down, I don't know, 30%, everybody was panicking. It was awful. Like People were like, oh my God, this is the worst thing ever. If you left it alone, the market was actually up 15%. <laughs> so you were actually fine <laughs> if you just left it alone. But the thing is, if you sold and you say, I don't want any parties, I'm going to sell out, you would have lost that money. You would have actually lost that money and you would not have recovered. So that's the big thing. A lot of times, if you leave it alone, you're going to be fine. But the unrealized loss is if you sold it right now, which you do not have to do. Yes, that is so important. So I know that actually really helped me with my anxiety around investing because I consider myself a novice investor still. And I'm very much prone to anxiety of like, oh my gosh, am I losing my money? Da, 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 da. And then once I realize, like, oh, yeah, but I haven't sold anything. This is an unrealized loss. Like, I'm not actually losing money unless I do something. And having that reframe has considerably helped my mental health around investing. And, you know, talking about mental health and investing, it's a very risky activity. It's something that people can have a lot of anxiety around. It can certainly affect people's mental health. I'm thinking of the stock market crash of 29 a lot of, there were so many suicides after that which is so devastating to think about you know what can people do to invest and build wealth but also manage their mental health like is it just about risk tolerance is it about something else like 
What's your advice for people so that they can invest responsibly and manage their mental health in a way that makes them feel comfortable? So for me, because I'm someone who can be really anxious too, um, for me, it's I like to rely on the data. That's one thing. Also, risk tolerance is very, very important. And risk tolerance, I, I like to call it, it's like an investing an investing personality test. So if I know that I am someone who does not like these ups and downs that can't really take looking at the market every day, then I might not want to invest in something that's very risky, like perhaps Bitcoin, right? It's up and down. It's a 24-7 thing. It fits for some people, but for someone who's who's really anxious and doesn't really want to see those ups and downs like that, it may not be for you. So it's essentially investing in things that you understand and that kind of move with the way that you move and understand how how you move. But when it comes to data, what I like to know and what we've what we do actually know is anytime that you're holding a stock on average for five years or more, you have a better than 97% chance that that stock is going to be positive. When you do it for three years um, or up to three years, you had like an 89% chance of it being positive. If you hold it for a year, about a year total, you had like 79%. So the longer that I'm invested, the higher chances that is going to be that the stock is actually going to be positive. So that's a good thing for me. But also going all the way back to, I think the year 2000, the stock market has only been down maybe four or five times total. So we're talking 2000 to 2003. So that was three bad years in a row. Not great. Yeah, 2008 is four. And you have five in 2018. That was it. So we're talking, what, 20 years and only five down years. That's also, doesn't predict the future, but it is a, a vote of confidence for me to say, look, more times than not, the market is going to be positive. I may not need to be anxious. I may not need to worry. And then the last thing is you don't have to check the market every day. You actually should not check the market every day. Um, when I was advising clients, for the most part, you would check it like four times a year at most. And that's it. Um, I think Jason Zawig did a study or reported on a study for the Wall Street Journal, if I'm not mistaken, where he said, you know, once you start to check it about more than four times, your performance actually dips because now you're chasing the market. Now you're trying to overcorrect. I have just two dates. I only check my account and make changes for myself and my kids two times per year. That's it. And it really helped me last year because I may have been really emotional, but by June, the market was already back up. When things fell off in March, I was like, eh, I'm not going to look. <laughs> and that's what really helped me. I love that. I think that's so important. You know, there's this emphasis on always, you know, knowing your numbers and checking your finances. And I'm totally into that as well. But I think there does come a point where it's like, okay, if you're investing for the long term, if this is your nest egg, this is your retirement fund, it's not going to be used for, let's say, 20, 30, 40 years, we don't need to be checking it all the time and literally making ourselves anxious if we know that's something that's going to make ourselves anxious. So love that. Definitely only check probably once a quarter or less and just keep at it. And I wanted to talk to you also about the importance of rebalancing. Can you talk a little bit about rebalancing and how that can help someone kind of feel more secure in their investing strategy? Yeah, so I'll, I'll do the rebalancing and the um, the risk tolerance. So in finance, we do what's called asset allocation. So it's really the amount of money or percentage that you have in stocks versus bonds. Bonds are known to be safer. They're known to be what I call the brakes to the pedals. Um, so pedals on a bike, <laughs> pedals press you forward. Those are the stocks. They're exciting. It's going to be fun until you hit a bump. And when you do hit a bump, you need those bonds to kind of brace you and kind of give you a break. 
I always tell this analogy, like when you're a teenager, you know, you fall, who cares? Like you just get up, you dust it off. No big deal. Who who needs breaks? Like you're 12. Um, but when you're older, <laughs> it hurts a lot more when you fall. You need more breaks. And the older you get, the less pedals you have, the more breaks that you have. So this is this is that rebalancing, the asset allocation. So one rule of thumb is take 110 minus your age. So if you take 110 minus 30, that's going to give you 80% in stocks, 20% in bonds. And each year, I want to make sure that I am somewhere around that range, probably within like 5% or so. If I don't do this, and let's say I just said, I say, look, you know, I'm 30, I got 80% in stocks. And now I'm 50, I have 80% in stocks. That's way too much, right? I want to go back and rebalance and make sure that my investments match up with my goals. Those who got really, really burned in 2008 were people who who were investing for decades and never actually rebalanced. They're like, look, I've been doing it since I was 20, since I was 30, and it was way too much risk. So when the market fell, they didn't have the breaks to really brace themselves in the way they should have and had to end up working a lot longer. So how does someone actually go about rebalancing? Like, what are the technical aspects of rebalancing? The technical aspects are actually pretty easy depending on how you have your investment set up. So if you're, if you have like a regular 401k or any like work related plan, when you go through and actually open it, they have percentages there. And all you have to do is is change those percentages. So for example, if I have 40% 40% in an S&P 500 fund that is a stock fund because it's invested in stocks. I can say, look, I don't need it at 40. I need it at, at 80. You also usually have a bond fund that you could you do the math or you can take what's called a risk tolerance questionnaire. You answer the questions and it'll spit out where you should be based on your risk tolerance and your age and, and what you're trying to do. So you can also do that, go through and just kind of just change the percentages. If you don't have anything like that, perhaps you have an IRA or maybe at Fidelity or E-Trade or anything like that, you can do the same thing. They usually give you a wheel where it says 20% of your money is in US stocks or something like that. But you want to calculate the money and say how much of my overall balance is in stocks versus uh, bonds and, and cash. Love it. Thank you so much for sharing that. This has been such a wonderful interview, you know, sharing about Tulsa and the racial wealth gap and all about investing. I think our audience is going to learn so much from all of this. Where can people find you and how can they work with you? Yeah, you can find me on all things at social media. If you ever have any questions, feel free to DM me, especially on Instagram, which is where I'm most active. Um, I love answering questions. A lot of people will, will ask a question and I'll actually make it into a video response because it's just easier for me. Um, yeah. But yeah, I'm, I'm huge on questions. I actually started my career as a teacher. So I'm all about questions all day. I'm all about teaching. Uh, so feel free to hit me up on all things social media at Building Bread. Thank you so much for listening to the Mental Health and Wealth Show. Want more content and support? Sign up for the Mental Hump newsletter and get our free mental health and money inventory worksheet. You can sign up at mentalhealthandwealth.com and also check out our other blog posts and podcast episodes. Also, we host a mental health and wealth hangout every other Thursday over Zoom at 5 p.m. Pacific to chat about all things money and mental health. The best part, it is free. If you'd like to support the podcast, it would mean so much to me if you left a review. And you can also support me at ko-fi.com forward slash Melanie Lockhart. And lastly, I want to remind you to do something for yourself to take care of your mental health and wealth.